Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armanza. Our guest today is Alex Lazaro. He has worked at the intersection of investing, innovation, and economic development across the public, private, and social sectors for more than a decade. He's a venture capitalist with Cafe Innovation and was previously with a media network. He's a Kaufman Fellow, Council of Foreign Relations term member, and an adjunct professor specializing in social impact investment and entrepreneurship at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. He's a graduate of Harvard Business School and the University of Manitoba. Alex is also a published author, having recently published Out Innovate, how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. In recent memory, the concept of entrepreneurship has been popularized by the explosive success of Silicon Valley startups. While the Valley's framework of building lean startups that move fast and break things has done wonders in their ecosystem, this model hasn't necessarily translated to outside the Valley. In his book, Alex Lazaro explores the framework of dozens of successful entrepreneurs and investors from around the world, acknowledging that entrepreneurship is never a one-size-fits-all approach. How Innovate comes out at an especially relevant time as a COVID-19 crisis threatens VC investing volumes in emerging markets. Armed with data and real-life examples, Alex presents a compelling case to invest in emerging market ecosystems with startups that look a lot more like camels rather than unicorns, built for sustainability and resilience to navigate frequent shocks and survive droughts. Mr. Lazaro, also reminds us that some of the best technology innovations increasingly come from outside of Silicon Valley. In fact, average returns for emerging market VCs has outperformed their peers in traditional entrepreneurial hubs over the last 15 years. By the same token, some of the most relevant fintech startups were born outside of the US. Nubank, a Brazilian company, is the largest independent digital bank in the world, and Ant Financial, a Chinese company, is considered the largest private fintech company worldwide. Our Innovate is a must-read for any investor, entrepreneur, and aspiring builder interested in learning about some of the most resourceful founders around the world who are building lasting companies and improving their communities in the process. And now, without further ado, let's listen to a great conversation with Alex Lazaro. Alex, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. We're certainly very excited to have you here. Uh, not only are you a venture capital investor, but you're also an author. And we're excited to talk about uh, all of your work. And you know, perhaps we can start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your background. Happily. I uh, work at the intersection of innovation, impact, and investing. So by day, I'm a venture capitalist. Today, I work for a fund called Cafe Innovation. No relation to the airline or the bank. It's a globally focused fund. 
headquartered in Paris, but investing all around the world. So a third of the capital is invested in Asia, out of Singapore, Shanghai, Beijing. A third is Pan-Europe, out of Paris, Munich, Tel Aviv. And a third is this notion rest of the world, mostly North America, which we work on out of our San Francisco office. We also have a Pan-Africa venture fund in partnership with Africa Invest. And the whole group, our, our venture firm, is affiliated with Cathay Capital, a Paris-based PE fund that's been around for about 15 years, about $4 billion in management, eight offices around the world. Uh, we write 5 to $20 million checks. And you know, topical of this podcast, fintech is a big area of focus for us. Uh, we've invested in companies like Chime and Funbox and Finixel, uh, among many others. And so excited to talk about some of those themes. So that's my day job. Before that, I was at Omidyar Network. Uh, working on financial inclusion and fintech investing there. It's a family office, venture fund, impact fund of Pierre and Pamela Midyar. Today, it's called Flourish Ventures. And outside of work, I've been uh, teaching entrepreneurship at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, which is, Middlebury, which is Middlebury College's graduate program in Monterey. And this will give you a little bit of a genesis uh, story to the book and, and the work that I've been doing there. But I was getting really frustrated. Most of my students were, you know, either they were a little bit like me. I, I grew up in the Midwest of Canada and they were moving back home um, outside the Valley or they were going to launch a startup often in an emerging market, you know, a very international heavy class um, or folks that were just wanted to move and, and build a social enterprise or what have you. And I was getting frustrated because I wanted to assign my students books on entrepreneurship or share best practice on how to build startups in ecosystems that just look different than what we have in the Valley, in ecosystems with less resources, with less capital, with less depth of trained startup human capital, or that might face more macroeconomic shocks. And there was nothing out there. And so I decided I'd solve the problem myself. And uh, I ended up interviewing about 200 entrepreneurs, mostly folks that are leading some of the largest and most successful ventures in emerging markets, as well as emerging ecosystems in the US and in Canada and in Europe. And I believe that the best entrepreneurs operating in Santiago or in Amsterdam or in Bangalore or in Chicago have more in common with the best entrepreneurs in Sao Paulo than they do with those in San Francisco. And yet, no one is telling their stories. I think they're challenging the conventional wisdom of Silicon Valley, but actually increasingly, they're reinventing startup best practices in a meaningful way. And that was the genesis of my book, Out Innovate, how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. It was just published by Harvard Business Review Press in April. And so that's the other bit of the work that has been keeping me busy these days. I like that you took the entrepreneurial approach. You were looking for a book, you couldn't find it, so you wrote it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I will say it is, you know, I profile a uh, I profile 50 or 60 entrepreneurs in the book. And I will say that writing a book is one millionth as hard as actually building a business, right? It's so much harder to build a real business. And yet, this is unequivocally the hardest thing I've ever done. And so it's it's been, in some ways, an exercise in empathy in what the actual entrepreneurial journey of, of what the folks that are, that are actually on the front lines doing it. And, and in many ways, I think that the book is just channeling, channeling their lessons and, the, and their thoughts. Before we go into learning more about the book, can you tell us a little bit about your efforts, your work at both funds that you've been at you know, over the last uh, six to seven years? Yeah, happily. I've always had one foot living in Silicon Valley. I live in, in the Bay Area and one foot investing in startups around the world. At Cathay, uh, we're looking at startups in a number of geos right across North America, Europe, and Asia and now Africa. And we tend to be at series B and C. 
uh, and ends up being a little bit more generous. So fintech is one of the things that we're looking at, but we're also looking at healthcare, future of work, future of commerce, among other things. And so that's the, the type of work that I do here. And it tends to be series B and C. So post-product market fit, but also with a pretty solid early track record on scaling fit on operational success. What I was doing at ON was a little bit different. It was one, one stage earlier, it tended to be kind of series A uh, and some seed as well. It was only financial services. And within financial services, only things where there's a financial inclusion lens. I also worked on a couple other of our verticals, including energy, but my, my principal work was, was in financial inclusion. And almost exclusively, I was doing about half my time US, but half my time in emerging markets, but almost exclusively around, around this question of financial inclusion. So that's been the, the work that I, I've been doing, but it's always been in partnership with entrepreneurs, the type of entrepreneurs I back, and, and I'm really excited about supporting our folks that are creators, they're creating a new market, and they're really doing it for a mass market solution with the tech for good feel. Um, and so the type of investments, the type of deals, the type of founders I partner with has not changed. And how did you end up covering emerging markets? Was this by design or by accident? Nothing's ever by accident, but there are plenty of accidents along the way. I've always been interested in this intersection that I was alluding to before of innovation, impact and investing. When I was in undergrad, I thought I was gonna do a PhD in developmental economics. So my love of emerging markets and development, those questions, is old. I ended up deciding that I wouldn't pursue an academic degree. I ended up getting an opportunity to work in investment banking a little bit serendipitously. I decided I want to get a little bit of job experience before going into a PhD and realized I loved the tool of finance. Um, this was you know, 06 to 08. I realized I wasn't in love with selling big Canadian insurance companies. Um, but this was as microfinance was really scaling and at the beginning of the impact investing phase. And when I was uh, doing my MBA, I hope you won't you won't hate me for it, but at a, at a school not that isn't that isn't Wharton. Um, but uh, I decided that You're I are okay would. with that. <laughs> That's good. Okay, um, I, I decided that that was the direction I want to spend my time in. And so the way I ended up in investing, I was sitting in my HBS class and realized I had no discernible skills, and yet I wanted to invest in these kind of companies. And so before going into investing, I decided that I would. Uh, take a job that gave me the opportunity to work across a couple different industries and a couple different uh, challenges. So I ended up in consulting for a while. I deferred my work at McKinsey for a couple of years because I had the opportunity to work at the Bank of Canada doing financial regulation. And most of the industries I care a lot about, like financial services or healthcare, others are highly regulated. And I thought it'd be really important to understand how that world works. And so I've always had this interest in emerging markets and I ended up getting a role in that investing, but I, I ended up trying to build a couple of different skill sets along the way that I thought would be helpful to hopefully make me a little bit more value added to the folks that I partner with. And I guess it also makes sense that you were covering the financial sector, fintech, because that is probably the most buoyant sector in emerging markets because there's such a need and such a gap of so many people that are underbanked or it is today. unbanked. It is today. It was not when I started. When I started investing in fintech, like fintech was just was a new word and there were funds that did venture and then there were fintech funds that were doing different things and you've interviewed many of them right that are that are these dedicated fintech funds today every fund has someone that covers fintech at least part of their time right it's become very much a sector but at the beginning it was very much the fringe that was kind of venture kind of tech kind of financial services that required a lot of deep ex expertise and so that's actually been one of the really interesting things that I've observed in fintech. The other thing that I've observed around fintech, which is at this intersection 
the greater intersection and overlap is that in many ways, you're seeing a lot of players that were not financial services providers start offering fintech products. And fintech players start offering things that don't look like traditional financial services either. And so the lines are blurring more and more. And a lot of people have written about that, including me. But I think that's something we're going to see more of. And, and so definitely today, some of the most successful startups in emerging markets, some of which and many of which I, I interview and in, in profile in the book, are in financial services. Um, but that's actually, I think, phase one or the, one of the first waves of, of the story. I think we're going to see over the next couple of years, waves of entrepreneurship and scaled companies in other sectors as well. Uh, but certainly agree with the sentiment that today we've seen some very successful stories. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, the book is fascinating. About two thirds of the way in, I'm, I'm loving every page. Uh, and one of the concepts that you talk about is precisely this, it's about banking the unbanked, which is such a necessary concept in emerging markets. How do you envision the world or these economies will look like once we get closer to you know, 90%, 100% people banked? You know, so in many ways... Uh, so maybe I'll take a step back first around this idea of why I think banking the unbanked is an attractive market. So in the book, I talk about this notion of creators versus disruptors, where in the Valley, many of the best entrepreneurs are focused on this idea of disrupting something. And this is more than a semantic difference. It's targeting a market that is already served, but perhaps served ineffectively or inefficiently and offering a product services that's more efficient, a, a better mousetrap or what have you. It comes out of Clayton Christensen's research, um, and it's this modern... David and Goliath story of the little startup taking down the big one. And it's emotionally appealing, but in emerging markets, that's not what happens, right? What happens is entrepreneurs are creators. They're finding a market segment that is not underserved, that is not served. They're creating a product or service to solve it. Sometimes they're formalizing something that might've been existing in the informal ecosystem and they're offering it to the mass market. And they are the shoulders of giants upon which others build. They're building the ecosystem. And I think that banking the underbanked is a perfect example of that. When I started investing in fintech, there was 2.5 billion people that were unbanked or underbanked. Today, some of the numbers are I've heard are as low as 1.5 billion, which is still a ginormous amount. But we've seen meaningful progress of that, in part driven by some of the advances in fintech, including in China. But what is really powerful about doing that is not only can you build fabulously large, successful businesses, as we've seen all over the world, but also those end up being platforms to do a ton of other things. On the back of mobile payments, for instance, in Kenya, where you can take someone that was unbanked and give them a mobile wallet and a variety of ways to cash in, cash out, you can then create a proliferation of other products and services that were not possible because of the high cost of getting small little dollar amounts in and out, or with lack of data and visibility on who your customers are. But with a mobile banking wallet, all of a sudden you could do digital mobile lending, a much lower cost than microfinance. You could do mobile remittances, a much lower cost than Western Union. Um, and you can even do things like energy access, right? There's a billion people with no access to power. And one of the reasons they can't afford connections to the grid or the grid doesn't exist, now these solar home systems can do pay as you go, but those only work because of mobile bank. One of the reasons I think is really important to focus on the interbank is not only can you build these thriving business models, but those business models then enable a variety of others. And I think that's one of the reasons that Kenya for instance, has seen a really, really strong entrepreneurial ecosystem of other startups building on top of mobile money. Um, and I think we'll see the same thing in a bunch of different ecosystems around the world as well. And we've definitely seen that, for instance, uh, in India and China and others. And so uh, I, think, uh, I think that's the reason. Yeah, Kenya is certainly a pioneer and has the, the very widely covered example of M-Pesa, 
right? Which sure. you also cover. Let's talk a little bit about the concept of the differences between Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs in, in emerging markets and then also the type of concepts that don't really apply the same way. For example, you talk about how first movers in developing markets are very different than first movers in a place like Silicon yeah. Valley, right? Can you expand on this concept? Yeah, and, and I think we could have a podcast on this topic alone as well on, on how to do it. But in brief, I think when you are creating a market versus disrupting a market, it's a very different game. If you're disrupting a market, and particularly if it's winner takes all and that kind of thing, it leads to a particular approach of growth at all costs, raises much venture capital, first mover advantage. I think there's a number of markets where there's not necessarily a first mover advantage. We, we talked about M-Pesa a second ago, for instance. That took them a long time to build, right? Because not only were they offering a new product or service, but also they were changing behavior. They had to convince a little teller at a small shop that when someone showed them a text message, they had to hand the money, right? That is not an intuitive thing to convince someone to hand money based on a text message. And so they had to build that in. And so that took a long time. What happened in Tanzania is uh, they all three mobile money operators started launching uh, in Tanzania. And because there was a couple of them, actually the education, customer education and marketing was split across a bunch of them. And actually the adoption was quicker. And so there is a little bit of this where you're creating a market. It isn't always obvious that the first mover wins, but I think what, what you need to figure out is the timing, the right solution, et cetera. I do, however, think that there's an advantage to being creative which I talk a lot of in the book, is this idea of the creator's advantage, which is if you were building a startup and building a totally new market, in many ways, the mountain is pretty high. But once you've done it, that mountain is pretty high for everyone else as well, particularly when you're building a, a range of enabling infrastructure for yourself, given the complexity of the business model that you're doing. Um, and so you end up having some really powerful modes. You're able to recruit a lot of people to the team, given the mission-driven approach. You're uh, able to garner support from a variety of ecosystem players, uh, which we've seen in different, because once you've proven the impact. And so there's a lot of things that I think counterbalance some of this too, um, and that I think give a net creator's advantage. But it is important to take a moment to nod at the difficulty that the best global entrepreneurs have to face when they're building their business and just say, hey, look, like when you're building a startup in a different ecosystem that has less resources, it is much harder. And we have to, we have to acknowledge that and, and, and start from this position of adversity. And I think that's one of the central tenets of the book is that in this context of adversity, the best entrepreneurs have figured out strategies that give them, in the end, advantages to thrive, to innovate. Right. They end up being more, more resilient. We actually had on the podcast not long ago, we had Hernan Casa from Kazakh Ventures. And he described building a startup in emerging markets, particularly Latin America, as, first of all, you're climbing a huge mountain, the same Mount Everest. But then on top of that, you are doing it while riding a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> so let's also talk about the whole concept of the lean startup, right? That's one of the most popular concepts in Silicon Valley, you know, at least for many industries. But you're arguing that this is not necessarily applicable in an emerging market. Why do you think that is? Yeah, and, and so I think there's like two concepts. One is there's the, like the lean methodology around do something simple, test before investing and buying. And then there's kind of the idea of being software only, asset light. I think the bit that I in the book talk more about is around the second idea, which is this notion that software alone doesn't solve 
the problems that we're looking to solve. And many startups in a lot of these industries need to be full stack. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that they have to build vertical enabling infrastructure just to make the end product possible. So a fintech example in the book that I talk about is a company called Guia Bolso, which is in Brazil. They're trying to build a personal finance manager. Think of mint.com for Brazil. Um, the challenge is that they had to build a ton more stuff just to be able to build the PFM. So mint.com, they want to offer an app. It's pretty easy, right? You can plug into, at the time, Yodli, which connects to bank accounts. All of a sudden, customers can get real-time version of their spend. They want to get a sense of credit score. Well, FICO exists, right? TransUnion and Equifax, et cetera, exists. They want to offer financial products and services. Well, there's a pretty ready market of folks that are willing to do web-based acquisition. And so that's the journey of Mint. But in Brazil, Kiev also had to build a lot of this himself. So first of all, there was no bank interconnection layer. So they had to build it themselves, right? There was no Yodli or Plaid. And then when they wanted to give people insights, not just on where their money was and where their money was going, but also their credit worthiness in a country that has some of the highest interest rates in the world and some of the highest short-term debt in the world, there was no FICO score at the time. You were either in default or you weren't. It was blacklist, right? And so they had to build their own credit insight piece just to give a sense of credit worthiness. And then when they wanted to actually figure out a monetization strategy, but also give people lower cost access to credit or tools that are more appropriate to them, there wasn't this ready market. So they had to actually build that ecosystem too. So just to be able to provide the final product, they had to build a range of enabling infrastructure around the idea. And we see that time and time again. Obviously, in Giobosu's case, in many ways, they were lucky, right? They were only building software enablers. In other markets, right? Think of if you want to build an e-commerce play in emerging markets where there isn't an addressing infrastructure or people are unbanked or what have you, you always have to figure out logistics in a much more complicated way. You have to figure out cash on delivery in a much more complicated way. And so people have to build a lot more of this full stack. And that's something I've seen in a bunch of e-commerce players as well um, as part of the book. And so, so that's, what I, that's what I talk about and, and why I think the software-only business models um, are, are tricky when you're actually trying to create, when you're actually trying to solve one of these massive problems. That makes a lot of sense. And do you think because of this lack of infrastructure and ecosystem, a lot of would-be entrepreneurs are being discouraged, but probably the, the most resilient ones, the ones with arguably higher likelihood to succeed are the ones actually taking the, the leap? I'd say there's a lot of reasons why entrepreneurs in more nascent ecosystems don't start. And you know, one of the reasons is you know, there's just a lot less resources to make it possible. Right? And it's not just these kind of things. It can be also venture capital. But I think one of the things um, I write about in the book as well is this notion of culture of entrepreneurship. Right? Is it acceptable to become an entrepreneur? Are there role models that uh, you can look at your parents and say, hey, I'm having this same career as this person? Right? Like, has, has that become, um, is there, if you fail, what does that look like? And I actually think there's a very important role of entrepreneurs and ecosystem builders around this question to make it more possible for entrepreneurs uh, to start, to succeed, and even if they don't succeed, to be willing to start again and to create the fulfilling cycle. So for instance, one of the folks that I interview in the book and I profile is a group called FUN, uh, which stands for Fuck Up Nights. I don't know if you have to block me out on this, but essentially Not it's founded in Mexico and they, they wanted to create a culture of acceptance of risk. It was four founders and they realized no one was talking about failures and it was this really, really awful thing and it was seen as your black mark in your career. And so they wanted to change that culture of risk-taking. 
And uh, it started in, in Mexico. Today, it's one of the largest distributed entrepreneurial organizations where they host uh, a bunch of these events all over the world and start that conversation. I think that's happening. But I also think that you can build some of this infrastructure to make it easier to build startups. Um, taking the, the identification and addressing example, um, India is launching what I think is one of the most exciting experiments in the world, which is ADAR, which is the biometric identity scheme, which is all of a sudden giving everyone identification. But on tied with that, there is a program called IndiaStack, which in partnership with iSpirit and a bunch of technologists, they're building a bunch of API-based things that sit on top of it that is just horizontal infrastructure that all of a sudden you'll be able to do some really interesting new business models too. So I think as an ecosystem builder, these are the kind of things that I would think about is how do you actually make some of this infrastructure that every startup needs to build, how do you make it kind of a little bit more of a public good, particularly things like you know addressing an ID, et cetera, that are literally public goods in, in, in other countries and other geos. Now, interestingly, you have your uh, unique trademark definition for this uh, resilient startups, and that is the camel, yeah. right? Uh, is the camel going to replace the unicorn? Should camels replace unicorns? So yeah, first let's start with some definitions. The unicorn technically is a startup worth over a billion dollars, but it has also become this mythological creature in the valley where it represents so much more. And it represents a philosophy on how to build startups. And that's the philosophy, the method is growth. It's growth at any cost. It's okay to subsidize user acquisition and services growth. It's okay to burn a lot of money in service of growth. It's okay to have a very short-term timeline. It's okay to blitz scale, right? Like that is the unicorn model that has become in vogue in the Valley. And we're, we're, uh, obviously recording this in a different time and, and times have changed a little bit, but that's kind of the unicorn model. And in the book I espoused and I argued for a, a camera model, which is a business model that looks for sustainability and resilience in the business model for day one. It doesn't mean they don't try to grow. Of course not. Right. We're all trying to build successful business models, but we are doing it from a position of sustainable unit economics from the get go. We're doing it from a position of managed burn and we're doing it with a long-term view. So let me give you an example. One of the sectors that I often associate with being kind of Silicon Valley burn at all costs is on-demand delivery, perhaps, right? And you think of like DoorDash raised $1.5 billion. Compare that story to Grubhub, right? Which was built out in the Chicago ecosystem, is raised by Silicon Valley standards a paltry amount, $80 million of venture, multi-billion dollar business. I interviewed Mike Evans, the CEO, and he talked a lot about how they were sustainable at every single fundraise. And every single fundraise was for a very specific objective. It was to expand to a couple other cities or make a small acquisition. And they raised venture capital when they needed it and for specific purposes. And that's really what I'm talking about. It's they built a really successful business, but they did it from this mentality of we're going to do it reasonably and thoughtfully. I asked him, you know, why don't you just raise a little bit more money and speed it up? He said, look, I took him about 10 years to IPO. And he said, look, I could have done it in two less years, but I would have done it at meaningfully more risk. And so we're looking, what I believe camels do is they are creating more successful risk-adjusted outcomes, right? If you look at a successful business that took the unicorn strategy, you only know, if you played that movie back 10 times, you only know one of the outcomes, right? Which is the one time it was successful. I don't know what happens the other nine, but I bet a bunch of them, it didn't work out the same way. I think that camel businesses, obviously you're not gonna necessarily get the outcome every time, but I think more often, you're gonna get a more successful outcome and more reasonably. And so those are the types of businesses. And in emerging markets, I think that entrepreneurs build camels out of necessity because there's less capital, there's less resources. But I actually believe it leads to a strategy uh, that lets them out innovate. And taking it to the current time in the Valley, right? We have, have a challenged time and we're looking for models of profitability, of sustainability, of being able to weather the storm. That model 
there aren't that many examples out here. And this is one where I think we have to look to the camel in emerging markets and emerging ecosystems. They've had to do it all the time uh, since the beginning. And speaking of challenging times, so you wrote the book pre-COVID, of course, shortly before uh, this wave hit us. Uh, but you talk about some concepts that have become extremely important. And one of those is the example of distributed teams and how many emerging market startups are distributed almost from day one right? and how this has a lot of benefits. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, happily. So this is another example of entrepreneurs building businesses in a context of adversity. In many startup ecosystems, if you have less depth of trained startup human capital, you need to figure out creative solutions. I believe that talent is distributed evenly, but opportunity is not. And the reality is in many startup ecosystems, not as many people might have had the opportunity to have the experience of scaling with a startup and building it out. And so, you know, if I was going to build a startup in Winnipeg, in my hometown, and I was looking to hire a CMO, there aren't 500 of them the way there are in the Valley. There's probably not 50. There might be five that have really scaled with the business. And they're probably working for some of the other good companies in the, in the city, right? That are tech companies. And so I would, by nature, try to find the best talent wherever it exists and look to build a distributed company. And obviously within distributed, there's a whole range, right? You could have multipolar business models, right? One office in Winnipeg, an office in Saskatchewan, whatever. And then to the extreme, it could be fully remote. Obviously the world has changed. And through COVID, everyone has adopted a full work from home policy uh, for our safety. It's important to remember that what we're going through right now, this version of remote is not normal, right? It is not normal to be working from home with poor internet connection, with our kids not at school, being worried about a pandemic and a looming recession. Like, that's not normal. But I do believe that working from home or different versions of distributed will become more normal with time. And it will be seen as a tool in the same way that many of the best entrepreneurs outside the Valley have already known as a tool to access the best talent, no matter where it's from, to manage costs because you can tap talent pools in more affordable places than San Francisco, to build muscles, to be born global. If you figure out how to be multi-office or work from home or what have you, it's much easier to sell across multiple geographies if you already have that muscle of being able to be distributed. And frankly, also to be more resilient team which is pretty important, right? If one node gets hit with whatever thing, you've got a network to fall back on as you're a more resilient business. So I, I think we're going to see more of that. And this is an amazing area where the Valley doesn't have the perfect playbook, right? I see on my Twitter feed, a lot of folks that are showing me their new Zoom rigs and their fancy setups. But the reality is the best practice on how to build startups in a distributed way lies outside the Valley. In the US, for instance, some of the best companies Think of Basecamp out of Chicago or Missouri out of uh, Zapier out of Missouri, excuse me, that are uh, building distributed. They're, they're outside the valley, and that's where the best practice is lying. And so I think this is another example where Silicon Valley has to look for the best entrepreneurs and the best innovations and the best playbook outside the valley to be able to survive and reinvent itself. And the data also shows that distributed companies tend to have a more diverse employee population. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, so first of all, diversity is a major issue and one that is not solved either the frontier or in the Valley. And uh, we have long strides to, make, to do in uh, both increasing gender diversity, but also ethnic and cultural diversity in the US, uh, the proportion of uh, African-American VCs or Hispanic and Latin in emerging markets, the questions of expat founders, that is a major challenge. 
But the idea of distributed teams is one area that gives me hope because diverse teams tend to be more diverse, both at the senior level and throughout the organization. And I believe that it's because entrepreneurs and employees are judged by the output that they have, not necessarily how they present themselves in an office setting. And by the way, I think this might also be a tool for VCs to drive greater diversity in their portfolios, um, particularly geographically, because the marginal costs, here we are, you sitting on the East Coast and me on the West Coast, and the marginal cost of our conversation is the exact same as if we were sitting uh, on the other side of a table in a cafe. If, in, if anything, it's even easier to do it by Zoom from the comfort of our respective homes. And so I think we're going to see a greater preponderance of deals happening outside the valley. And I'm hopeful that this will drive a flattening of access to VC elsewhere. And I think if you combine that with this Zoom with things like computerized decision-making and others, I hope that it will also drive a little bit more judgment on outputs rather than our preconceptions on who the founder is and what a backable founder looks like. But still a lot of work to do in this area. And I hope that when I write the sequel, I'll have some much, much better strategies um, to talk about that have really solved this in certain geographies. Absolutely. And so speaking of the venture capital industry, which is the industry where you work by day, as you mentioned, uh, you, you actually have some meaningful criticisms for the industry, right? And, you know, you talk about, for example, how the returns of uh, emerging market VCs tend to be actually better on average, right? Uh, what kind of response have you received from your colleagues, particularly the ones in the Valley? You know, it's really interesting. The VC model in the Valley works extraordinarily well for a certain type of company, obviously in the Valley, right? And I believe venture capital has a place in supporting entrepreneurs, right? Like full disclosure, I am a venture capitalist. But I also think that as the world of innovation continues to proliferate around the world, we also have an opportunity to revisit the symbiotic model of capital for it. And that's revisit the venture capital model. So first, where did the VC model take its roots? Its roots were not Silicon Valley, right? I asked my students where they think it is. They said, oh, it started in Palo Alto or what have you. The roots are actually much older. It was actually from the whaling industry in New Bedford. And the reason we call it carried interest is quite literally, it used to be what you could carry off the boat in terms of whales uh, and whale meat. And that model has been adapted to the VC model here in the US and is now being adapted around the world. But I actually think that we're going to see some adaptation of this. And it's a little bit too early to tell you what they are going to be, but I can tell you some of the areas where I'm seeing green shoots. The first is a reinvention of the actual product of capital that's being offered. And so if the current VC model takes its inspiration from the whaling industry, we could also take inspiration from other high-risk ventures like the mining industry. And some people are playing around with the idea of revenue shares, which look a little bit more like royalty payments as a tool. Others are thinking about longer-term holding periods with evergreen funds and things like that. So I think there's that as a bucket. I think second that I alluded to earlier was the nature of how do you make decisions and can you do things with computerized decision-making? There's a whole range of funds that are using computerized decision-making to judge outputs of the business rather than be based on traditional investor meetings. And then the third is who the investors are. And certainly in emerging markets, we've seen the rise of impact investors as a driving force. In China and in Asia, we're seeing a new form of corporate investing where big uh, technology companies are also offering their ecosystems as a way to support the scale of their business models, of their portfolio. And so I think we're going to see some reinvention of this. And so my perspective is over time, there's going to be a much greater diversity of types of businesses that get built. 
and a greater diversity of the aspirations of the founders of those businesses. And as a consequence, we as folks that serve entrepreneurs need to also have a greater diversity of what products we offer them and how we offer them to better fit their needs. And so I think we'll also see a greater diversity of venture capital, or rather let's call it startup financing models over time. I still believe the VC model will continue to have a place to fund certain types of businesses. I just think we're going to see more of them. And this is not just emerging markets. You had one specific example that I thought was interesting of Carlos Antequera, someone who founded a company that was very, very successful, but was somewhat incompatible with VC. And, and this was uh, right here in the U.S., in Kansas, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, and, and they're building a revenue share model, uh, like we were talking about before. And what's interesting is if you look at some of the most successful revenue share investors, like them or Lighter Capital or ClearBank, which is now a startup that's doing this in an automated way, they are all outside the valley, right? Kansas City, Seattle, Toronto, respectively. Um, and so it's no surprise that the innovators of the VC model are also in places outside where entrepreneurs are building according to a different playbook. Now, you talk to a lot of people. You mentioned over 200 people for your book. Did you find any traits that you think are fundamentally different from emerging market entrepreneurs as compared to um, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs? Do you think there's something in their background that makes them radically different? Um, you know, I think this is an interesting concept to talk about. You know, so in the book, I have a chapter around cross-pollinators, which examines what I think makes successful entrepreneurs in more of these emerging ecosystems. And in many ways, the defy the Silicon Valley stereotype, right? I think in the Valley, we have this notion of the 22-year-old hooded warrior um, that's going to battle against an uh, incumbent, inefficient company with a new attitude and new product and new way of doing things. And the reality is that's not what it looks like in more emerging ecosystems. Founders tend to be older. They tend to be more experienced. They tend to have had experience across different functions, but also different industries. And they also tend to have experience from different geographies. And when they build their businesses, they're porting some of those together to be able to scale the business. This is a really powerful look in the mirror moment for us as well in the US. It is undeniable the power and the importance of immigrants. For instance, the ultimate cross-pollinators are taking experience from different geographies and different life experiences to build their businesses in some of the most successful startups in the US. But also, if you actually look at the most successful companies in the US, many of them are also founded by folks that are older that have more experience. And so really there's this cognitive dissonance. I've heard the argument that people say, hey, well, actually the companies that are the largest, think of Facebook or Microsoft or what have you, uh, Apple with Steve Jobs, they were still founded by young folks. So maybe the outcome is more binary where some young folks build really massive business models. But what's really interesting is even in those business models, the performance of the stock at Microsoft did better when Bill Gates was in his 40s than when he was in his 20s. And the performance of Apple when Steve Jobs returned was also better when he was a more experienced uh, cross-pollinator and had a couple of different experiences under his belt. And so I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think we'll, we'll have an opportunity to reflect on that. And so I, I think that's the characteristic that I've seen time and time again um, are these cross-pollinators that are very successful. So going forward, we're obviously going through this major crisis what type of businesses do you think will get funded post-crisis uh, or actually once we can see the bottom in, in the rearview mirror? Yeah. So I, I continue to be long-term incredibly optimistic for the potential of entrepreneurship 
It's never been easier to build a business. If you think of Amazon Web Services, you can rent a supercomputer by the hour instead of buying a server farm. Shopify, you can build really modern e-commerce front end instead of having to build everything yourself. I think a lot of the things to make it possible to build startups at scale are there. And so long-term, I think that I've never been more excited about it. I think in the short term, we are unquestionably in the eye of a storm right now. And it is an incredibly challenging time for everyone. And my heart goes out to founders that are having to navigate this and figure out what, what to do with their businesses and their staff and what have you. But I'm actually still, I'm a VC, so I guess I have to be perennially optimistic. But I am optimistic. It will happen in the medium term. And, and what I think is going to happen is we're going to see the creation of a whole set of businesses that will have impact and focus on solving some of these problems. The problems that we're seeing in our society as a result of COVID are not new, right? It is not a new problem that we have 60 million Americans that are unbanked or underbanked. It is not a new problem that there's 85 million Americans that have inadequate healthcare access and health insurance. But COVID-19 has laid bare those challenges in our society. And those are intractable challenges. I also believe they're incredible opportunities to solve. They're massive TAMs that have been unsolved so far. And I hope and I believe that creators that look to tackle those markets, that look to find a new product or solution combining business model innovation or technological innovation, I think will build something really meaningful and importantly also make a difference. I think my optimistic side will say, I think we're going to see more of those. I hope so. And I think we need it. Fantastic. Fantastic. And Alex, before we go, I imagine you did a lot of traveling while writing your book and then you, you visited several cities and countries where this entrepreneurs operate. Any favorite moments, any favorite stories while writing this book? One of the stories that was really powerful for me, and this is probably when I started writing the book, but also just in my own experience uh, as an investor was in Tanzania. So I, uh, when I was at Omidyar Network, I had the opportunity to partner with a company called Zola, which is the off-grid energy. Imagine two solar panels, charging unit, couple of cell phone chargers, some lights, a TV, what have you. And their innovation, I alluded to it earlier, was pay-as-you-go solar. The families couldn't afford the system up front, but they were literally burning uh, jet fuel, kerosene every day, spending a little bit of money every day on, on light. And they transformed this upfront payment into this daily, weekly, monthly payment with these home solar systems. And one of the moments that I remember really powerfully is having dinner with a family that had just had one of these systems installed. And that had the lights turned on for the first time with us. So we went over uh, and we brought dinner to this family's home and we turned on the lights. And this was the first time they ever had a modern lighting system, not a candle. And it was just, just incredible to see the power of technology when used for good with this creator's mindset to tackle what I think could be a massive industry, right? There's 1.2 billion people that we haven't figured out how to do it. And all of a sudden we have solar panels, cheaper batteries, mobile banking, all these things that make this thing possible. I think that cemented my hope in the power of, of entrepreneurs and innovation to solve some of these challenges in new ways that we haven't thought about. And so that's a moment that I, that I remember really fondly and I, and I thank the Zola team for. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, Alex, the book is out, Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit Are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. Fantastic read. And, and thank you for joining us, Alex. We, we do appreciate it and we're looking forward to seeing all your future success. Thank you so much. And for those interested, the book's available anywhere where books are sold, obviously on Amazon. But given the crisis, I also encourage you 
to look for your local bookstore and support them because it'll be available there as well. And for those interested, you can follow my newsletter, sign up at alexlazaro.com, A-L-E-X-L-A-Z-A-R-O.com or follow me on Twitter at Alex Lazaro. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And you're always welcome on campus. I know it's not your school, but you're always welcome. I, uh, I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 